0: up here, John chapter 17 in your Bibles this morning, John chapter 17, Hmm. well I don't know about you but I was blessed yesterday in hearing brother Miles preach and uh, as he yesterday morning was relating those times when you are working at something like he was giving the example of the car seat, remember that? I'm sure all of us had our own stories coming to our minds (laughs) uh, where we've been in similar frustrating situations. Uh, But all of that was immensely helpful in pointing us to the enablement that God gives by His power through His Holy Spirit. And uh, so uh, we'll trust the Lord uh, to continue to work in our hearts. Last night was a tremendous uh, focus really in uh, introducing the whole spiritual awakening conference. That whole idea of revival and uh, when God sends it. Very helpful in dealing with all of that. Now today we want to begin to peel back some layers. Get into some more detail uh, and how uh, to get there. Uh, So let's look to the Word of God and the Spirit of God to guide us into His truth. And so we're going to look at John 17. Now this is a tremendous chapter of Scripture. Uh, If you read books on revival and you read books on uh, the Spirit for life, you'll find that these authors will refer to John 14, 15, 16, and 17 repeatedly. Those chapters are key chapters in understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. So you want to saturate yourself in those chapters. I remember back in 1999, I recognized that these authors kept referring to those chapters. So I thought, you know, I want to find out what are they talking about. And I began to ask God. God opened these chapters up to me, and uh, I began to read them. And uh, I read Acts 1 and 2 and John 14 through 16 over and over again. And weeks rolled by, and I remember thinking to myself, you know what, I don't get it. And I remember telling the Lord, Lord, I'm going to get passed by. If you don't open my eyes, I do not get this. And weeks were rolling by, reading those chapters over and over again, and just feeling in the dark, just just surface tidbits, not really understanding. And then uh, it was sometime in March, uh, this was January through March, seeking the Lord, And the Spirit of God began to open up these chapters. (laughs) And uh, what glorious chapters they are. And they're capped off with a prayer that the Lord Jesus prays in John 17. I wish we had time to walk through the whole prayer. We're just going to hit some highlights that deal with a specific aspect for us this morning. But John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying. And uh, let's pick it up. Um, Let's read verse 11. It says, And now... I am no more in the world. He's getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to go to the cross and to ascend. He says, so and now I am no more in the world. But these, referring to his disciples, are in the world. And I am come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one while I was with them in the world I kept them in thy name those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled and now come I to thee and these things I speak in the world that they may, might have my joy fulfilled in themselves I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world there's a key phrase even as I am not of the world I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Now I want us to notice a couple of prepositions here. In verse 11, Jesus, as he prays, says, "These are in the world. And yet, in verse 14, He says, because they are not of the world. And he says it again in verse 16, they are not of the world. So they're in the world, but they're not of the world. That is a very key thought. I want to speak this morning of in, but not of. (laughs) And what this really is, is a biblical look at what we call separation from the world. So let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher this morning. Blessed Holy Spirit, we do thank you that you are the one who guides us into all truth. And I pray that right now you'd quicken us in spirit, in mind, in body to receive what you have for us. Would you open the eyes of our understanding? Would you give light, clarity, life? And Lord, I pray that you'd nurture faith. And Lord, give us wisdom as to what it is to live in this world and yet not to be of it. Lord, give us a true understanding Of separation from the world. And so I pray that you use truth to liberate and set free. I plead the blood. Would you protect us from the attack of the enemy. Who seeks to confuse this. And get us off into extremes. And so Lord Jesus I claim our position in you at the throne. Far above the enemy. And in your name I exercise your authority over the powers of darkness. That would seek to hinder. And I trust you that that not be allowed. So breathe on us once again. Make this time profitable. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you worldly or are you godly? What would the world say? What would God say? What is worldliness? What is godliness. And in light of that, what is biblical separation from the world? Now we just read, Jesus made it very clear, that as his disciples, we are in this world. And yet we're not to be of it. You notice in verse 15, he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. Ah, so it's not a matter of somehow being taken out of this world. No, we are in it. And yet we are not to be of it. That's what I want us to see. We are in the world but not to be of it. Now how can we be in this world and not be of it? I want us to, in our minds today, peruse some key passages, probably familiar passages, uh, that address the believer's relationship with the world, and uh, both in the the sense of what's called the cosmos, that uh, more tangible world, as well as the age, more the philosophical world. And as we do this, I want us to note three distinctions of true biblical separation from the world. And I trust the Spirit of God to use this to give us hope. First of all... Separation from the world is a matter of transcendence over the world, not isolation from the world. This is very important to understand. We've already seen it in verse 11. Jesus said, these are in the world. But then he prays to the Father and says, Keep through thine own name those that thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. So somehow, even though they're in the world, they are to be kept. They are to transcend that world that they are in. We saw in verse 14, they are not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, Jesus said, even as I am not of the world. So he's making it very clear they're in, but not of, and yet they're kept. Somehow there is a transcendence, over the world but notice he said I do not pray that they should be taken out of the world so that means what we call separation from the world is not a matter of isolation from the world that's a wrong idea nowhere in the world But we're not to be of it. So it's a transcendence over the world, not an isolation from the world. If we are in the world, but not of it, then separation from the world is not isolation from the world, but transcendence over the world. Now the Bible makes this clear in a number of passages. In 1 John 5, you don't need to turn there. The Bible says, and this is the victory that overcomes the world. There it is. And it goes on to say, even our faith. So somehow by faith, we can access victory, and we're told that it overcomes the world. It implies we're still in it. And yet we're not of it. Somehow we transcend. We overcome the world. Isn't that an amazing thought? Because sometimes we think, well, I wish I could live in another century where it might have been easier. (laughs) But, you know, Ecclesiastes tells us, no, don't wish you were in another time period. We're in the time period we're in. By the way, it's always been wicked. (laughs) Ah... I remember having a meeting in San Francisco, California. And San Francisco is known for sodomy. It's known for perversion. It's known for blatant uh, wickedness. It's the kind of city you don't even want to walk your, your kid down the street because of the blatant wickedness. It's really that wicked. And uh, I remember talking to the pastor there uh, about it. And he said, yes, you're right. He said, but we have not yet reached the sin of Corinth. And I thought, Wow. <laughs> It was worse <laughs> uh, in Corinth. And he's right. And uh, the point is, uh, regardless of the century, man's heart has always been wicked. And Jesus is telling us that, look, you're in this world. But it is possible for you to overcome the world that you're in. Amazing possibility. It's worded this way in James one twenty seven. Pure religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows. That's an interesting application. And then it says, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The implication is you're in it, and yet somehow you're unspotted from the world. What an amazing possibility! That it's not a matter of somehow going to another planet. (laughs) No, this is the planet we're on. We're in this world. And yet it's possible by God's grace and power through his Holy Spirit to be unspotted from this world that we're in. That's amazing. How about Titus 2 verse 12? Which speaks of living, quote, godly in this present world. We would think godly if we can just get out of here. (laughs) And yet it says there you can live godly in this present world. That's amazing. That implies, obviously, we're not going out of it, we're in it. And yet, somehow, there is power and provision available to live godly in this present world. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, we have these messages to the churches. And the phrase that's repeated over and over again is him who overcomes. It's not him who splits the scene. It's him who somehow transcends the scene. Him who overcomes in the world but not of it. Indicating it's not isolation. It's transcendence over the world. Not isolation from the world. Otherwise, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.10, for then ye must needs go out of the world. (laughs) And that's not how it works. Now, having said that, this does not imply you hang out in places of wickedness. Now, the Bible is very clear about that. Psalm 1 verse 1. I remember learning this as a little kid. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. In other words, there's certain places that are the way of sinners. they are places of wickedness, and we don't need to be there. So this idea of transcending over the world and not being isolated does not imply that we go hang out in places of wickedness. Uh, That should be obvious but uh it's very important it's not what we're talking about we are talking about that there is a victory while we're in this world that overcomes the world we're in as we walk through the course of life i was uh in a big city one time with a friend and that day uh taking a break between some all the ministry and stuff that we were involved in and it was uh uh, the downtown area of this big city, wealthy city. And uh, uh, we went shopping a bit and this and that. So you're going through the marketplace. Well, you can go through the marketplace. There are things there that uh, the Satan uses to tempt the flesh. We all know what we're talking about. And I remember by the end of the day, my friend said to me, he said, you know it was wonderful today to just take the grace of God, take the grace of God, take the grace of God all throughout the day and be totally free... The entire day. You know what that is? That's transcendence over the world. In it. Yet not of it. Victory that overcomes the world. And so the first key matter here. Of biblical separation. Is that it is a matter of transcendence. Over the world. Not isolation from the world. Secondly. It's a matter of transformation by the spirit not mere conformity of the flesh now this is very very important because this is where we often get the wrong idea it's transformation by the spirit not mere conformity of the flesh now let's take a few moments to compare and contrast biblically worldliness versus godliness let's start with worldliness there are two greek words translated world in our new testament One is the word cosmos, has to do more with space, in a certain sense we might think the organized or tangible world, the other words I own, it means age, uh, more the sense of time or uh, the the philosophy, the philosophical aspects of the world, but regardless of that, let's just take a look at some key passages that will define what, what the Bible means by these words. When it comes to worldliness, I find that there are at least three defining issues. First, worldliness is simply a heart for the world. It's an affection, a desire, an affection, a heart for the world. In 1 John 2.15 it says, love not the world. And that's the word cosmos neither the things, see that's tangible, that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, okay, there's your desire, of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Okay, so obviously, here's a passage that makes clear one of the key defining issues of worldliness is simply a heart a love a desire an affection for the world and it gets real specific to help us understand what that means because it talks about the lust which simply means the desire of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life now let's talk about those for a second let's begin with the lust of the flesh what is that that would be physical desire taken beyond biblical boundaries now, God's made us, and he created us with desires. How about the desire to eat? Anybody have that? <laughs> how about the desire for a cup of tea? <laughs> what would the Irish do without a cup of tea? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is just this is, this is a part of the fabric of how the Irish are made, <laughs> and uh, uh, so on. And, you know, all of that is very legitimate. Obviously, we have to eat or we would die. So it's not wrong to desire to eat. That's a good thing. We've been talking a lot about food the last couple days. Now, the Bible does warn of a sin called gluttony. So that means it's possible for a legitimate physical desire to go beyond biblical boundaries. I remember a pastor friend of mine, a few years back, God opened his eyes to the spirit-filled life. The Christ life. Accessing that life of Jesus in him as the animating, energizing power to his personality. And he began to experience victory over some sin habits in his life. And he was thrilled. He was just reveling in what God was doing. And then it occurred to him, you know what? I'm overweight. And if I can trust the Holy Spirit to help me in victory over this, this, and this, these other desires... He said, I can trust the Holy Spirit for victory in this. And God uh, stirred his heart about it. And by faith, he began to trust the Spirit of God to be properly controlled in his diet. I remember a dear lady coming to me in one of my meetings. And she said, you know, uh, the Spirit of God's been convicting me. And uh, usually people talk about impatience, anger, and stuff like that. And she said, I'm a glutton. (laughs) Uh, well, she didn't look terrible, but she uh, she could use a little help, so uh, uh, you know <laughs> I, shouldn't <have> said, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that uh, But God was speaking to her. that's the beauty of it. It was the Holy Spirit speaking to her and dealing with, in her case, a heart for the world that's an application that we often don't deal with. And so uh, fascinating. lust of the flesh. How about man? Woman relationships. You know God created man. And he created man in such a way. uh, That he needed Eve. Adam needed Eve. And so he created the helpmate. And so forth. And he created that first marriage. And he created all that goes with that. including, Including the physical relationship. God made that. And it's not unholy. It's holy. In that relationship. And. Uh. You know, uh, people often when they preach to teenagers say, you know, be pure until marriage. Well, wait a second. How about after marriage? (laughs) Uh, The point is, when you do it God's way, it's pure the whole way through. Hebrews makes it very clear. In Hebrews 13, verse 4, when it says, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Referring to the physical relationship. It's honorable. God made it. It's pure. It's holy. It's God's plan. Then it says, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So the point is, there is a legitimate physical uh, desire there that God made, but he has boundaries. And so uh, when uh, you go beyond the biblical boundaries, that's when you get in trouble. And so that's what the world does. Uh, uh, Under the influence of the God of this world, uh, to take things that God made in their proper place and take them out of their proper place. And so the lust of the flesh... Physical desire taken beyond biblical boundaries. And there's many other examples we could mention. But uh, that's the lust of the flesh. How about the lust of the eyes? This would be material desire. Covetousness. Material desire taken beyond biblical stewardship. And it's very interesting that in the Ten Commandments, one of the big ten... (laughs) It says, Thou shalt not covet. And so there's a desire there for more and more and always got to have more. Now, the world knows that man has this lust of the eye thing in him and they bank on it <laughs> in their advertising and everything else. And so there's the lust of the eyes. How about the pride of life? This would be egotistical desire, replacing God's will. You know, there are ambitions that we have that are obviously wrong. There are other ambitions that may look really noble because they're ministry ambitions, but they are ambitions that down deep feed our pride. They feed our ego. It's egotistical desire, replacing God's will for you. Now think, a heart for the world, an affection for the world, a desire for the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of the life, okay, there's your your Bible definition of what's happening here, and ultimately, this heart, this affection, this desire for the world, is a desire for the God of this world, who is the prince of this world. You say, what do you mean? Well, as S.D. Gordon puts it, there are only two wills. There's God's will... And there's Satan's will. Say, what about my will? Our will either lines up with God's will or Satan's will. Always. Now I want to ask you this morning, is your will lined up with God's will? Really, down deep, is your will embracing God's will? Because if it isn't, it's embracing Satan's will. And we need to understand that when that's the case, it really shows where our love is, our heart is. You see, Satan's a big deceiver. He tries to make you think that you're just exercising your will when really you're embracing his. And what he does is he appeals to our flesh according to Ephesians and in so doing gets us to think that we're just choosing what we want for ourselves when we're actually choosing what he wants for us. And when we cave into the flesh thinking we're just doing it selfishly, feeding our own self desires the fact is we're embracing Satan's will which means we actually have a heart for Satan now we don't want to think of it that way to think that we would love Satan well that's what it is that's why Evan Roberts who was used of God in the great Welsh revival one time in a prayer meeting with some other preachers, said man you need to confess your love for Satan (laughs) And there was some quietness. And he said, you need to confess the sin of loving Satan. And finally one of the men said, well brother, we don't love Satan. He said, look, anytime you yield to anything that's not God's will, you're loving Satan. Then they caught it and they began to confess. When's the last time you confessed that sin? Fascinating. So first defining issue is a heart for the world the second defining issue is conformity to the world we're still talking about worldliness and here we switch words from cosmos to the other word i own or age it's romans 12 2 and be not conformed to this world literally this age be not conformed to this world you see the world is constantly trying to to force us into its mold it has a mold, and it's pushing us, it's shoving us, it's, it's influencing us to get into its mold. You see, the world defines worldliness. The world has its own standards. See, there's not a group of preachers that meet globally and decide uh, what we're going to preach against, so we can make life miserable for all the believers. <laughs> no, the world... Tells us what's worldly. Sometimes it's things that are obviously intrinsically evil. Other times it's things that are not evil in and of themselves. But the world attaches um, a, a negative or evil idea with it. For example, um, is it intrinsically wrong to wear clothing that's too loose for you? No. I mean, guys in the Depression grabbed whatever they could, and if it was too big, and <laughs> it was kind of baggy and whatever, uh, it was no big deal. Uh, that was not sinful. But what about when the grunge, I don't know if you remember that word, uh, became the way to, you know, the, the fashionable whatever, whatever. Uh, you know, you never tie your shoe if you have a shoelace at all. <laughs> and you wear clothes that are, you know, just so so big they barely hang. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They look kind of scary to me. Um <laughs> Sometimes I look at some of those guys and I think, good grief. All right, whatever. (laughs) Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wearing clothing that's too large. But there was a time period when that first was the cutting edge that in that time period the world attached a meaning to it. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Where they had taken something, they had set it up as a standard. It was a defiance of... Uh, of any absolutes it was nothing but humanism applied to dress relativism no rules applied to dress now the world sets up its own standards they have standards of what they believe they have standards of what they practice they have their own standards Uh, when I was a little boy the hippie movement was big in the USA and it probably was in all western culture and uh, I remember you know the whole hippie thing (laughs) I was just in elementary school at the time and whatever, but I remember seeing uh, in the newspaper a little comic and uh, it had all these hippies and their big mantra was, you know, we are non-conformist. And in the picture, everyone looked the same. <laughs> they all had real long hair and shaggy this and whatever, whatever. Okay. Uh, fascinating. They were conforming to another standard, a new standard uh, and so on fascinating how all that works now sometimes the world will embrace things that actually come from the bible that of course is fine that's a good thing it's actually a positive impact on society and that's what revival brings to cultures but uh, satan doesn't like that and so the issue is when the beliefs and practices of the world are under the influence of the god of this world It's in those moments that you have a real issue. For example, let's take the matter of fashion here for a second. Uh, Not everything that the world puts forward in fashion is wicked. Sometimes they're actually displaying God's creative beauty. How about colors? You know, it's interesting. Religions that are oppressive, uh, all of a sudden nobody can wear anything colorful. And that's that oppressive rigidity that comes from Satan. uh, Even applied to uh, uh, religions that uh, uh, bind people and so on. Uh, No, God made colors. He made beauty. Look at the flowers. Uh, There's all these different colors. And so uh, uh, the world sometimes displays God's creative beauty. And uh, in that case, they're in line with the Bible. So, that's not worldliness in that negative sense at all. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, a fashion will highlight the pastels uh, for ladies. Other times, they'll highlight the bolder colors, you know, a bold blue or a bold red and so forth. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And, of course, they're just using it to make money and, and make something fashionable, so it's the in color, and so everybody's got to get the in color. Uh, but you re- even in churches, when it comes to carpet, I remember in the 1970s, every church in America was orange. 1970s, you remember there was that uh, Kermit the Frog green <laughs> and orange. Those were the big colors. And so uh, uh, most churches didn't have the Kermit the Frog uh, green carpet, but they did have the orange carpet. <laughs> and we loved it. Well, then when mauve and lavender and purple became the popular colors, we all looked at the orange and said, oh man, what an ugly color. No, it wasn't ugly when it was in. <laughs> Uh, And so, you know, the world, they're doing it to make money, whatever. Isn't it amazing when they take a color that is not, I mean, you know, whatever. How about mustard yellow? (laughs) Well, when it's in, it's in. You got to have it. Mustard yellow, whatever. Okay. So in that sense, that would not be an evil uh, or negative thing. It's just the world displaying God's creative beauty. But there are other times when in fashion, the world defies God's divine order. Like your (laughs) modesty. And when it comes to modesty, the obvious ought to be obvious. (laughs) And uh, so forth. And so the world plays off of that. And uh, in that case, they're pressing people into a mold that hinders and hurts. It's again now the, uh, the appeal to the flesh uh, to trip people up and to display what God does not want displayed and uh, to trip uh, others up and so forth and be a stumbling block. And in that case, it's defying God's divine order. But my point is, the world has its own standards and it tries to force us into its mold. So, worldliness... Part of it's a heart for the world, the lust, the desire, the heart for the fl- of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Part of it's a conformity to the world. And then a third defining issue is that God really calls it enmity against God. Uh, it tells us in 1 John 2.15 that if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if you love the world, you don't love God. And it's stated more blatantly in James 4.4, 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity. It means hostility against God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And it is sad, is it not, when we have God living in us and we become the enemy of God. By becoming a friend of the world. 1 Corinthians 2.12 puts it uh, uh, very clear. When it says there's the spirit of the world. Versus the spirit which is of God. The spirit of the world. Not just an attitude. <laughs> but the spirit. That spiritual realm. The God of this world. The prince of this world. The powers of the air. The spirit of the world versus the spirit which is Of God. Now. You could say a whole lot more. But there's worldliness. Now let's contrast that to godliness. Let's take the same three defining issues. If worldliness is a heart for the world. Then godliness is a heart for. Alright. Let's do that again. (laughs) If worldliness. Is a heart for the world. Then godliness is a heart for. God. (laughs) It's the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Jesus repeats that in Matthew 22. That is the greatest commandment. The greatest. Love the Lord your God. Have that passion for God, that heart for God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, every part of your being, body, soul, and spirit, everything focused on God. And so Colossians 3.1 says, Set your affection your heart on things above where Christ sits (laughs) wow see we have an affection either for the world or we have an affection for God a heart for the world a heart for God now loving God or love for God demands the law of antipathy (laughs) in other words love demands hate loving this way demands hate this way uh, that's put in, in strong terminology. But again in 1 uh, John 2.15 when it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, he doesn't love God. The love of the Father is not in him. And so there's that law of antip- antipathy. When you love the world, you don't love God. When you love God, you don't love the world. Which means it's impossible to be worldly and godly at the same time. <laughs> Now we compartmentalize some things. I do understand that. Uh, But in those compartments there is no way that you love God and the world at the same time. It's impossible. It's the law of antipathy. When you love the Lord, you hate that which diminishes your love for God. Uh, To help us understand this. um, You know, if someone was attacking my wife or attacking my son, it wouldn't bother me. To attack them. And if they were actually trying to kill my wife or my son. I would have no problem with killing them. That sounds mean. I'm not trying to say that. My point is. Love demands hate. And so when we love God. There is a not loving. A hating of that which diminishes our love for God. And to put it very strongly the other way, when we love the world, we don't love, we hate, in that sense, God. You see, godliness is a relationship to a person. Not a system. So that godliness is not religious ritualism. But a relationship with the person. It's loving God himself. So godliness is a heart for God. Worldliness is a heart for the world. Let's go to the second defining sense. We saw secondly that worldliness was conformity to the world. But this time we have a unique nuance of difference. We would think that godliness is conformity to God. The problem is we can't do that. We heard that yesterday morning in Sunday school. So in this case worldliness is conformity to the world, but godliness is transformation by a person. By the Spirit. It's interesting in Romans 12 too, It says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fascinating. It doesn't say, And be not conformed to this world, but be conformed to God. Because we can't do that. The flesh profits Nothing. So it doesn't say, be not conformed to this world, but be conformed to God. It says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And when that happens, then you are conformed to God. But it's not you, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. What a difference. So godliness is transformation by a person, not replacing one conformity with another conformity. That's what unsaved religions try to do. Ah oh, that's not what we're talking about. The Bible speaks of the religions of the world that produce a form, can I say it this way, a conformity of godliness. But they deny the power thereof. And that's condemned. That's fake religion. And sometimes even in the Christian realm, people are saved and on their way to heaven. They're justified. But they try to get sanctified uh, in their own strength and in their own power. And they just try to go through the right motions of what looks good. And it's nothing but mere conformity. It's the form of godliness, the conformity of godliness. And it denies the power thereof. It's fake sanctification. I tried that for years and it doesn't even, it's not even a good fake. But uh, it's a tragic thing to fall into. No, it says, "But be transformed." The word is metamorphosis from the inside out. Transformed. The word is translated changed in 2 Corinthians 3:18, changed into his image. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So it's changed. It's transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where God in you is manifested to you and through you. So that God is actually shining in you and through you. That's godliness. It's Him. It's actually Him. In our vessel. That's transformation. Transformation. So that means holiness is not conformity to a list. Because unsafe moralists can conform to a list. And it's not holy, it's a filthy rag of self-righteousness. No, holiness is when you access the Holy One. There's only one holy life, his name is Jesus. And he moves in when we get saved to impart to us his holy, can I say it this way, victorious life. And when that holy life shines through, you have the fruit of the spirit. Which is love, joy, peace, long suffering, not short suffering. (laughs) Gentleness, goodness. Jesus went about doing good. It's who he is, goodness. Faith, meekness, that real preference for God's will. Temperance, ah, spirit-empowered self-control. Not just willpower self-control, the world has that to some measure. But the fruit of the spirit is temperance, it's spirit-empowered self control which means when we talk about holiness not being conformity to a list but accessing the holy life of Jesus we're not talking about a free-for-all that allows you to do whatever you want no not at all because when you access Jesus there's love joy peace and so on and temperance there is a spirit empowered restraint but it's spirit empowered it's God led God enabled it's not an oppressive rigidity that's always the enemy it's liberating freedom where his power is um, imparted to you. His life is imparted to you so that there is a proper constraint. You're under the influence. You're under the control of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's real holiness. And uh, when that's real, yes, you'll have applications where there are distinctions and differences from the world. But the focus will not be on the applications. The focus will be on the perp- a person of Christ in you. So worldliness. Is a heart for the world. Godliness is a heart for God. Worldliness is conformity to the world. Godliness is transformation by the spirit. And worldliness as we saw was enmity. Or hostility toward God. Whereas godliness is amity. <laughs> uh, we don't really use that word. Or friendship with God. You see biblical separation. Is separation to. God. The focus is on God. Not the from. It's kind of like getting, you know, when a couple gets married. We've got a beautiful example coming up here shortly in March. Uh, with Lisa. You know, when, a, when a, a bride and a bridegroom come together in that wedding ceremony. You know what? It's separation. Big time. <laughs> but it's positive. It's separation to each other. And I get this. From... Everybody else. Now we're going to sit there and say. Oh man that's negative. (laughs) No. It's so positive. We don't even think about the negative. Okay. That needs to be our understanding of separation to God. It's positive. It's him. The bridegroom of our hearts. Yes. There'll be some separation from us. But that's not the focus. As we become citizens of another country. So, true biblical separation is transcendence over the world, not isolation from the world. It's transformation, not mere conformity. And then thirdly, it's a matter of trust in God, not trust in man. You see, there's a man's approach to this, and there's a faith in God approach the man approach often could be stated this way. It's a fear approach. Where, okay, I, I, I want to be separated uh, from the world. And then you get afraid of this, that, and the other. And it leads to a monastic style of sanctification. Now think about monks and monasteries. And of course, in their case, it's not sanctification. They're trying to earn their way to heaven and all of that. Uh, But they're afraid of the defilements of the world. And they're so afraid, fear approach, that they cloister themselves... within these monastery walls, miles away from any other human beings, so that these men are not even around women, and they're not around anybody but this little, you know, uh, this little cloister uh, group of men, and supposedly this is going to give them victory, and while it may keep them from physical uh, uh, aspects, it doesn't conquer their hearts. You just take them outside of the monastery and they go down pretty quick. And what happens to some Christians, yes, they're saved, they're justified, they're on their way to heaven. They go to a monastic approach at sanctification.